are listening to Fast Track Podcast, the place to be to fast track your personal finance or fast track your business or both. Through a series of conversations with those who have learned it, done it, and made it. Jack Vincent started his career as a magazine editor and writer. Two years out of university, he moved from New York to Barcelona with one-way tickets. But jobs in journalism weren't that easy to find in the early 80s. But he found his sweet spot in marketing communications. And by the end of the decade, he was marketing the worldwide sponsorships to the Olympic Games, the World Cup football, and the ATP Men's Tennis Tour. And today, not only he's helping people to sell more effectively, he's back to writing. Only this time, it's screenplays and fiction thrillers. And paradoxically, that fits with sales. And today, we are going to talk about how to sell more effectively, how to become more persuasive, and how neuroscience can help you to gain influence. Welcome to Fast Track Podcast, Jack. Well, thank you for having me, Yazi. I'm delighted to be on your show. Yeah, and you have a very interesting life experience that you now live in three different locations, two countries, and start from the beginning. So,、uh, where you come from originally? Well, I come from a really cool region of the world,、uh, the Woodstock region of New York State. You're probably too young to recognize it.、Uh, in 1969, there was a huge concert there、uh, with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and The Who and all of the great bands of that time. And、um, it's about two hours north of New York, along the Hudson River, is where I grew up in a town called Catskill. Uh, it was just a just a normal life, you know. For me, it was you know just a normal life. And now I look back and say we were so lucky the way we grew up. It was just、mm-hmm. easy. Everything was easy. And now you live in both Switzerland and、uh, Spain. And in my in the bio, I mentioned that back then you bought one way tickets, you know, from New York to Barcelona. How did that happen? Oh, that, what an adventure! Way back in the late seventies, I was a student at Syracuse University, and my best friend talked me into doing a semester in London. And I did the semester in London, and I traveled around the continent. And I fell in love with Barcelona, and I fell in love in Barcelona. And、uh, so I graduated university as a magazine editor and writer, and also wanting to write the great American novel and all of that. I became in love with the whole Hemingway, Fitzgerald, all of those people, you know, the expatriates living abroad in Europe and stuff. And a year out of university, I worked a year at a local newspaper. I thought, you know, I'm gonna. I'm going to buy a one-way ticket to Barcelona and go live the expat, you know, poet writer life in Europe, in the middle of the old town of Barcelona, and it was great. But the jobs weren't for the picking, you know. So licking envelope, you know, this was well, a long time ago, Yazi. You know, when I was trying to sell articles to editors in New York, I was, you know, licking envelopes and putting airmail stamps and sending off my article ideas to editors, and you know. And it was a long, slow process. And the next thing I knew, I was working in marketing communications, and then marketing and sales, and、uh, on and off. You know, that that was close to forty years ago. And、uh, you know, thirty of those years, I've been here in Europe. 
Wow. And uh, back then, so you, you quit your job or you just graduated from your university, then you flew to Barcelona? No, I graduated university. I had a girlfriend in Barcelona, um, graduated, you know, that I met in, you know, while I was living in London and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, we were in touch and one visiting the other every six or eight months. Uh, so I graduated university in journalism and magazine, and I was working on a newspaper, and I also became the editor of the weekend magazine. You know, so the Friday copy comes, and you have a magazine inside. I was the editor of that, so I did that for a year. So a year out of university was when I said, "Well, you know, working in my hometown, a year out of university," I said. You know, Barcelona is waiting for me. Europe is waiting for me. So I, I just bought a one-way ticket, and, and <laughs> kind of mo- and moved in with a woman. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long have you uh, have you lived in Barcelona then? For over the next sixteen years, I lived in Barcelona for eleven of them. Okay, so I was a little bit back and forth. Uh, so I went as this, you know, wannabe Hemingway writer, and then I. Uh, years later, I, I moved back and my career was starting to go. And then years later, I moved back again, five years before the Olympics. And I was working in a big sales and marketing job for a U.S. multinational. But I was soon recruited by, the, by a headhunter who was recruiting for the agency that sold the worldwide sponsorships to the Olympic Games. We're good, the 92 Olympics were going to be in Barcelona. And so three years before that, I was working on the worldwide sponsorship sales and marketing of the Olympic Games. And I mean, that was like break into sports marketing and I'm at the top of the game working on the Olympics and the global marketing program. Yeah. It was it was extraordinary. And then I, I stayed with, you know, then they moved me to Atlanta. Long story, but I was in the States again for like seven years uh, before I moved to Switzerland, because by that time I had married someone from Switzerland and had a family with her, and a, a great job came up in Europe. And there wow. I was back. Yeah, I was working. I moved to London, and the family moved to Switzerland, um, and I was working on the uh, ATP men's tennis tour at that point, and it was so much fun. We didn't travel every week, but we were wherever the big tournaments were, we were usually there because that's where business was done yeah. too. You know, this, you know, the tennis business sponsorships, TV rights, um, the administrators of the sports, uh, you know, so we would watch a little tennis, have a nice lunch and go into meetings wherever the men were playing. It was extraordinary. <laughs> it was so much fun. And at that time, how did you learn Spanish then? Oh, I learned Spanish back in the beginning when I, when I was in, University in London, traveling around Europe, met a woman from Barcelona. She and I were visiting each other for like three years. Uh, summer of 1980, I think it was, when I bought that one-way ticket and landed there. Her, her English was no better than my Spanish. Uh, and when I landed there, she said, hey, look, you know, you're living in Spain. You and I are going to talk Spanish. And so she and I talked Spanish and, you know, I was just submerged in the Spanish. I would wake up in the morning and, 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 you know, whatever I would do, it was Spanish or Catalan. 
for Barcelona. So I learned Spanish really quickly. And, and I also learned Catalan pretty well at that time. I mean, it was just all day long Spanish. You know, there was no choice where now I live in Switzerland and, and I, you know, I say, oh, mein Deutsch is nicht so good. And they say, oh, English. Uh, but, you know, 35 years ago or more, 40 years ago, living in Spain, I would say, no hablo tan bien el español. And they would say, usted habla muy bien. Because they didn't, you know, they didn't speak English. Yeah. And my Spanish and my Spanish was survivable. So when, you know, you're surviving and, you know, it just gets better every day. Where in mm -hmm. Switzerland, they don't give me the chance to speak German because it's so bad. Nobody wants to deal with it. And they, <laughs> and they know English. Yeah. Um, totally understand. <laughs> I think even if if you are in a situation that you are forced to learn and speak the local language, you learn faster, right? And in Switzerland, some people or majority of people can speak English and it's just easy. I, th I think that's my biggest problem with learning German. I have five reasons why I learned German more slowly than Spanish, but Swiss German is no day at the beach. German is more difficult than Spanish. Then you throw Swiss German on. So that's two reasons right there. But, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, I'm older. That's another one. And, you know, the other one is when you start struggling with German, they just go into English, you know, and then a year later, they say, well, you know, why aren't you speaking German? And it's like, what are we speaking right now? English. <laughs> You're part of the problem. <laughs> and so you were like a full fledged in your marketing career. Um, but in the bio, I mentioned that now you are a coach. So how did it happen from a, your career in marketing? And now you are independent as a coach. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm an accidental coach. I uh, the the sports marketing industry crashed in 2001. Uh, there was the internet bust, and you know the money really comes from corporations. Even television rights—that's TV stations buying the right to be the broadcaster of an event—that comes from advertisers because without advertisers, the, so you know they buy these rights the broadcasters, knowing that they're going to sell the advertising. At the same time, so that's one stream of income for organizers and, and the ones who hold the, the intellectual property, the TV rights, the other main one. Well, then you have tickets and all of that. And then you have corporate sponsorships. And, and you know, the, usually the corporate sponsors are the advertisers too. Um, and everything just crashed in 2001. The first thing to lose budget is sponsorships. And with that TV, right? So the whole industry just crashed. And I had been working 16 years in it about. Um, and I decided it was time to go. Well, at, you know, at first I was consulting. And then one of my consulting jobs kind of turned into training. And then they recommended me on to another client. Um, and I thought, you know what, this is, this is fun. I was enjoying it. I'm not a young man now. Uh, this was 20 years ago. I was in the middle of my career and I had a lot of things that I could share with people. I mean, selling, you know, the Olympic games and things like that. And, and I was also learning again. I said, I had stopped learning in sports. Here I was, you know, having sold the worldwide sponsorships to the Olympic Games, had worked on World Cup football, had worked on other events, ATP men's tennis tour. But I, you know, I was kind of not learning after 16 years. I, I really wasn't learning. Yeah, okay, the internet was growing. So I was learning a little bit there. Um, and since I've been a coach and, you know, a sales trainer, um, I've found that I learn a lot 
as I'm coaching my clients, I learn as well. And it also gives me the bandwidth and the creativity to write books and things like that. So I've, you know, I've written three books. My big one is A Sale is a Love Affair. And that would not have happened if I was living the corporate life. Right. And tell us a little bit more about this sale is a love affair. <laughs> well, you know, it's weird. <laughs> a sale is a love affair because it is. Um, what, what I've noticed is, is that the process of finding clients, selling them, negotiating with them, and having a happy journey with them is like finding love, falling in love, and having a happy relationship. I was separated. I was coaching, I was on a three-day workshop out in the Swiss Alps with a, with a, a client, uh, you know, and, and their sales team in from around the world. And their sales, you know, it was like 15, you know, when they sold something, it was 20 million. So they had 15 salespeople around the world and they were all in Switzerland and we were on a mountaintop, you know, small place doing a workshop with flip charts going and stuff. And at one point, you know, I was saying, you know, when the customer does this, what should you do? And they're answering and I'm writing on the flip chart. And, you know, and at one point I said, well, you know, you need to ask the question, what's wrong, baby? It's kind of like a relationship. It's love. You're not talking to me, honey. Tell me, baby, what's wrong? I got to know. And everybody laughed. And then what happened was that became their joke too. It became our joke. And in stand-up comedy, there's a tool called the callback. If you get a laugh about something early in the show, keep calling back to it and people will just laugh. Okay. So, you know, like maybe in New York, they'd say, ah, the driver's from New Jersey and you get a laugh. And then throughout the show, you can just keep referring to New Jersey and you're going to get laughs. Um, and, and so What happened was I noticed that, you know, even like an extroverted woman salesperson at one point, you know, we're, we're talking, how do you close the deal? And, you know, and I'm again, I'm writing their answers and putting my insights into it. And this one woman said, guys, you're so slow. I just look at my clients and I say, we've had dinner, we've had drinks, are you coming back to the hotel with me? And everybody laughed. And when I saw that this joke was their joke, And it was corporate, okay? I said, man, this book has got to be written. And, uh, and I was newly single. Uh, and I was just seeing the parallels of being in the dating world and being in the sales world. A sale is a love affair. And, and it's like 45 chapters, which after the intro and before the outro, it's like, you know, 40 stories that make a link between selling and falling in love. You know, the different steps of the deal from getting attention and starting a conversation to focusing that conversation, to asking questions and listening, to closing the deal. Yeah, closing mm -hmm. the deal. And it could be a quickie or it could be a long-term relationship. And, and I go into the subtleties of that. Some clients don't want you forever. Other clients do. You need to negotiate differently. Wow. And welcome people find this book. A Sale is a Love Affair by mm -hmm. Jack Vincent. Uh, it's called A Sale is a Love Affair. Seduce, engage, and win customers' hearts. It's on Amazon. Okay. Uh, we will put that in the show notes. Thank <laughs> so you.
Very interesting. And so let's talk about sales a little bit more. What are、sure. the common mistakes、uh, you've seen people made? I'm doing one of them now, but you're interviewing me,、uh, and I'm not selling to you. I'm I'm your guest. If I were selling to you right now, one thing I would be doing wrong is talking too much and talking about me. Okay, but I'm your guest on your show, so we we have to face that reality. You know, I, for example, I I now have a new thing because I'm back into writing and writing fiction too. I see the links between fiction writing and business storytelling, and it's not about you. When people say, "Oh, you know, storytelling in sales," you know, tell your story. I'm like, no, 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 don't tell your story. Uh, so if you have to talk and it's early, you may want to tell the story of a customer who is like the customer sitting, the prospect sitting in front of you.、Um, you know, tell their story, why they were hurting, why it hurt, what was going on in their lives when they found you, what happened when they found you, and how you made their lives better. And at that point in the story. People will like if you're at a conference giving a talk like that. People will, at that point they'll say. To themselves, who are you? Wow, that you really help people. But if you start saying, "I help people," and me, 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 people lose interest. But if you tell a story with a plot and a, and a, and a resolution, people want to know, "Wow, how? Who are? Who is this guy? Who is this company?" So that's one thing. If you tell a story, don't tell your story. Tell the story of another customer and make it dramatic. They had consequences if they got it wrong. Then is, and you can do that in forty-five seconds, okay? Or you can do it in a ten-minute talk. But you can do that in thirty seconds. Oh, oh, I had a customer just like you. Bing, 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 bing. And then we did this, and then they get interested in.、You. But the minute they start getting interested in you, then you need to ask questions about them. So answer their questions. Quickly, and then follow up with a question, and really, go, and when they answer, don't say, "I have a solution." Go deeper, go deeper, go deeper, and the more that they talk and answer good questions, not just any question. Okay, I have a series of questions.、Um, so, and and the deeper you go, and not just deeper, but where you go with your questions,、um, they start trusting you. We trust people who listen to us more than we trust people who tell us how good they are. So if I am asking somebody, you know, where does it hurt, and how did it get started, and who else is this impacting, and the more they talk, the more they're trusting me. So that's one thing. And then don't think your solution is so goddamn brilliant that the client can't make it better. In fact, it's your job to kind of lead the way. In building a solution, but let them give good hard feedback on it at every step. And when they say that won't work here, it'll kind of work, but not really. At that point, don't say, "I know, I know, I was just putting it." No, don't get defensive. Be strong. Be secure. There's strength and vulnerability. And and when they go, it. You know, it it kind of works, but not really. And let me tell you why. Look at them with love and say, "Yeah, how can we make it better for your specific organization?" Then, when they start co-owning the solution, they're more likely going to buy it. 
And when the boss says, I'm not so sure about this, they will defend it. But if it's your brilliant solution and they like it and they say goodbye and a day later they're talking to the boss and the boss says, I'm not so sure, they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'll tell him to go away. But if they co-own the solution, you've listened, you've asked them to join you, you're an expert, okay? But they know their organization or they know their life. When they join you in building the solution and take an active role in it, they're more committed to it. Right. So you mentioned, like, tell the story, tell other people's story, listen more, ask them questions, provide them a solution that they co-own it, like lead them to come up with a solution. So the customer feel like it's part of their idea. So they are more likely to go on this journey together with you. That is it. You Very, very good summary. I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> um, so my next question actually is the same, like the mistakes people made and then how to sell effectively. And next, I want to touch on the be persuasive because you mentioned to me that you want to um, talk about it. You also have a book coming up. So how can people be more persuasive? Because there are people who are naturally, you know, a little bit more quiet, a little bit more um introvert and how to be influential, convince other people? Uh, well, that's what I'm doing in Madrid this week. I have my first draft done. And this, believe it or not, I'm in the middle of a busy city, but I can find my loneliness here. Uh, I, I can find my solitude here, I should say. And, and so I'm working on my, going from first to second draft is a lot of work, but that's really when everything takes shape. And so I'm right in the heart of it now. How can we be more persuasive? Introverts, by the way, have advantages over extroverts. Okay? Nobody is perfect. And nothing works always or, okay, but that's all part of the yin-yang. Introverts listen better. And by listening, you become more persuasive. I'll say it again. We trust people who listen to us more than we trust people who tell us how good they are. Now, back to persuasion. You have a point you want to make. And, you know, I, I, you know, I hear people say all the time, be authoritative. Yeah, that helps. Um, you know, use logic and emotion and credibility. Um, and, you know, and it's all about what you're saying and how you're saying it and what you're saying and build it. To, and I'm like, you're forgetting the one most glaringly up, you know, thing as you're being so authoritative, as you're being so logos, ethos and pathos, as you're saying this, as you're building your argument, what about involving them? What about listening to them? And if you're going to stand in front of me for five minutes and make a really good case and you get done and I go, okay, I knew that already. Or yeah, you've raised some good points, but you haven't addressed my problem. We need to listen more. So the, the, my next book is The Persuasion Paradox. You know, neuroscience, about neuroscience and psychology and, you know, the, our reptilian brain and, and the way we are is the way we've been for hundreds of thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. And it's a question of push and pull. It, so pulling is asking the questions. But you need to start, if I walk into a meeting and look at everybody and they go, well, come on, Jack. And I'm going, no, I want to listen. People will think I'm stupid or weird. So I need to lead. I need to take the lead. Um, so triggering their interest with something that is going to pull them into the conversation. It's going to hit them in the heart as it hits them into the head. I don't sit in front of a CEO 
of a mid-sized corporation. I usually don't sit in front of CEOs of major corporations unless, some, you know, we get to, but when I'm working with big corporations, I'm dealing with uh, country managers or region, okay? And in, in mid-sized organizations, I might be dealing with the CEO and marketing director or something like that. I'm not gonna walk in there and say, something that, you know, let's sit on the yoga mat and contemplate this because I'm trying to touch your emotions. No, I have to touch their emotions, but I want to do it in an ambiance and in a scope that is their business. So it needs to sound professional. It needs to be professional to their business, but I'm also punching them in the chest. So I might say, you know, we dealt with a company, I dealt with a company very similar to yours a year or so ago, and they were sliding in market share. Um, the, the, the competition was all over them and they had some great products and solutions, but the, the sales team was not executing well and it was getting worse. Believe it or not, I have touched emotions there too. So if the CEO or the senior person in the room leans forward and says, how did you do that? I've triggered them. They're all of a sudden, their curiosity is such that they are totally into the conversation. I need to find something and research helps. You need to show up and know what they need because you do your research. They're not going to have on their website what their big problems are. But, you know, so you do that through conversation. But to know maybe in a phone call before, I need to say something that triggers them into wanting to have a robust dialogue with me. Once I get there, then I use my pull. So I need to push that. I need to trigger that. And that is the, uh, the amygdala part of the brain getting triggered and sending uh, signals to the prefrontal cortex saying, this is important. Now, please pay attention. But that's the, the, the reptilian brain emotionally saying, this is important pay attention. We are you know, walking through the woods and a large animal comes out and looks at us and roars. We are triggered into dealing with this. We're not going to take out our mobile phone and, and text a friend about dinner on Saturday night. We're, our attention is totally in. Now our rational brain is saying, deal with it. You know, the, the emotional brain is telling the rational brain, deal with it. Uh, and it's the same thing in a conversation. You've got to break through the filters with something that is going to make their jaw drop and want to go deeper into that conversation. You need to push them there. Once they're in, step back and pull and navigate the conversation through to understanding them, showing them that you're trustworthy, building the solution together. When you build the solution together, the next layer out of the brain is the hypothalamus. And that starts secreting oxytocin and dopamine. When we collaborate, we build a collaborative vibe. There's actually chemicals going on in the brain that's saying, I love this. I'm falling in love. Oxytocin and dopamine. I trust you. We are a team. And when you can do that, when you can make that happen biochemically, yes, biochemically, you are building more commitment. You are encouraging them to commit more to you. It's very crucial. I think, like you said, there is a neuroscience. There's a reason behind it. And once you get your customers committed the journey with you, you're more likely to retain the customers. And then the project is more likely to be successful and everybody wins. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And in this new book, is it about how to use neuroscience to be more persuasive? Or are there any other content that you are going to reveal to the readers? Well, it, it's, it, neuroscience is centered to it. I mean, you don't have to um, work in a lab. Uh, no, it's about conversational tools. But these conversational tools trigger things in the brain and in the psychology that make you more persuasive. So authority is important, okay? Yes. You can be introverted and still be an authority. So people want to know that you have the competence, but they also want to know that you have the deference. They, they might not consciously know this, but when you are deferential and you listen and you engage with them, the, the, the love, really, the dopamine, and the oxytocin, the trusting, this just builds. And there are tactical ways. Yes, tactical sounds like a bad word. It's not manipulative, but you want to sell, right? And you want them to trust you and say, I, I want to work with this person for a long time. You can have all of the technical skills, but if you're not building the love in a neuroscience psychological way, I mean, so even a sale is a love affair, Uh, that was before I knew about the, the neuroscience stuff. A lot of the same stuff is going to be in there, but I think this way is going to be a, another way of impacting because it's saying what's going on in the body, in the nervous system and the brain. And I believe that knowing this, people will come away with a few more tools on, on how to activate it. Yeah. And you mentioned that you have wrote, uh, you have written other two books. Would you mind tell the audience what are the names of these books? Where can they find them? And as well as um, where can they find you on the internet? Oh, well, everything is available on Amazon. My first book was called Sales Pitches That Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Um, and that was about four years before a sale. That was 2011. A Sale as a Love Affair was 2015. And then around 2017 or 2018, I, I write poetry and I write love poetry. And so I was out, you know, networking in Zurich or Zug or Madrid or wherever, you know, and I'd be saying, yeah, I write poetry, love poetry. And somebody would say, I do too. And I'm like, oh, no kidding. Wow. Gee, you know, and, and I'm thinking about doing a book, but it would be a thin book because I don't have that many poems. And they go, well, if you ever, you know, maybe you should do an anthology. And I'm like, well, that's an idea. And then a week later, I have a glass of wine in my hand or talking to you, you know, and I'm going, I write poetry too. I write love poetry. And they go, oh, my boyfriend writes love poetry. Really? Uh, hey, if you ever want his address, you know, I was like, okay. And then, you know, I have another one of those conversations. And, you know, the following morning, I wake up to an email saying, yeah, I want to be in your anthology. And I'm like, I'm not doing an anthology. Well, I thought, hey, maybe I should. So it ended up, uh, it's called Poems for Lovers, Poems with Friends. It's got 16 other poets in it. About half of the poems are mine. I curated it. I have the right to put in what I want and I did all the damn work. Uh, and I knew the process for self-publishing a book. But so I gathered uh, 16 other poets. You know, Some of them gave me one poem. Some of them, I put a limit at three each. So I have 25 poems in there and I have about 35 poems from others. So Poems for Lovers, Poems with Friends was 2017 or 2018. 
And, uh, and, and now I'm working on um, the persuasion paradox. I'm also working on fiction. I'm at the point in my life now where I do work less when it comes to client-facing stuff. I've just kind of gone back to my creative groove. But I'm, you know, I'm still helping companies. Y yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. And if someone wants to have individual coaching with you, could uh, can they also in get in touch with you besides companies? Abs Absolutely. Jack at jackvincent.com. And my website is jackvincent.com. I'm all over the place on LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, I'm easily findable. And, you know, I'm st on Instagram, I'm story warrior Jack Vincent. Okay. Thank you so much, Jack, for being here. Thank you so much for all the great content and sharing your knowledge with our audience. It's been a pleasure being here, Yazi. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fast Track Podcast. Show me your support by liking this episode and sharing it with your friends. Join the Facebook group at Fast Track Podcast One, or you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and of course, the homepage, FastTrack.life. See you in the next episode.